This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. We'll take your Bibles this morning. And turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, we'll be looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. One of the things that we promote a lot here to the members of our church is what we call our D groups or our discipleship groups. So we try to be very intentional about what we ask you to do as a church. Our desire is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. We do that by equipping you in three areas, worship, community, and mission. If you're not growing in those three areas, you're not growing as a follower of Jesus. And under that idea of leading you and equipping you to worship, it really is talking about your own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And D groups really exist for that purpose. All they do is read the Bible on the same Bible reading plan and they get together and talk about it and have discussion questions. It's just some accountability to reading the Bible. I have a great D group this year. Uh, I've got one senior high guy who was in my D group last year, but he's got another year in high school. So he and I are co-leading it, and we've got four middle school boys. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm learning so much. It's incredible. Last week, our reading was from the end of Mark and the beginning of Luke, which means that we had about three stories with angels in them. So at the end of Mark, you have the young man clothed in white, radiating, who was standing by the tomb. And uh, he was an angel. And then in Luke, you have the angel coming to visit Mary and give an announcement. And then the angels filling the skies to give the shepherds an announcement. And so, of course, I was being asked about angels. A lot of questions about angels. When were they created? Do they procreate? What do they do? How much power do they have? Do they die? What's their job? Do we ever see them? And all I was doing is trying to change the subject as quickly as I could. Not really because I wanted to get back to what we were supposed to be talking about, but because I didn't, I didn't know anything about angels. I mean, they were asking me because not only am I their D group leader, but I'm their pastor. And if anyone should be able to answer all of their questions about whether angels die or not, it should be me. I didn't have a clue. So I just said, guys, guys, let's get back to the text. I came out of that on Sunday night, got into my study Monday morning, opened up the Bible and realized that our text for this morning is all about angels. And I also realized that out of all of the text in Hebrews, well, maybe not all, the Melchizedek stuff is weird, but this may be the strangest of texts. And the reason is because we just don't think much about angels. We have 10 verses right here about the superiority of Jesus over angels. To which we want to say, do we really need 10 verses to make that case? I mean, we read verse 4 at the end of our text last week, which says that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Meaning Jesus is much superior to angels because of the most excellent name he's been given. And we say, well, that's great. We got it. We don't need 10 other verses about it. I doubt many of you struggled in your heart this week 
on whether to worship Jesus or angels. Because we just don't think much about angels. And because we don't think much about angels, we don't really know what to do with this text. But for some reason, those that were being written to were concerned with angels. We don't know exactly why there's all this attention on angels. It could have been that they were exalting angels. I mean, they are incredible spirit beings. Most people will say there are billions upon billions, maybe even trillions of angels that are filling the heavenly places. We're told that we should be hospitable to strangers because we could be entertaining an angel unaware. We see some of their activity and work and it is easy to see their power and the effect that they can have and the way in which God uses them and their intelligence. It could be that they were thinking too much about angels. It could just be that they misunderstood Jesus. There are some who would view Jesus as just another angel, uh, kind of a manifestation of God, but not God in the flesh. And maybe it was to correct that. But at the very least, we know this, that in their minds, angels represented the old covenant, the Old Testament. There are five passages of scripture in the Bible that tell us that God used angels to deliver the old covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai. So Moses went up to Mount Sinai and received the word from the Lord. Five times it tells us that God used angels to do that. So when it talks about angels being, or Jesus being superior to angels, it's not just about angels, it's about the old covenant. Now remember this book is written to Jews who were raised believing and understanding the old covenant and seeing the glory of God in the old covenant but they had come to hear about Jesus. And what they discovered is that everything in the Old Testament is really just pointing us to the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is a shadow. The reality is found in Jesus Christ. Every promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is that to which everything else was pointing us. Meaning that the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. It is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And so these people had decided to leave maybe their synagogue and family and friends and believe in Jesus. But they were constantly being drawn away by their own flesh and maybe by the devil and certainly by the old synagogue and their old friends and family members, people continually pulling them away and calling them to come back to the old covenant. So the point that is being made here is really not simply one of the fact that Jesus is much superior to angels, but that Jesus is much superior to anything you left when you came to Jesus. This is really the case. You see, all of you left something to come to Jesus. If you didn't leave something, you didn't come to Jesus because coming to Jesus demands repentance, meaning that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you must turn your back on something and embrace Jesus Christ. Salvation demands repentance. But that which you turned your back on is going to also be that thing that is constantly pulling you back. Your whole life, you're gonna constantly have this pressure to be drawn back to what you left. For them, it was the old covenant. I don't know what it is for you, but it's something. There is something that is pulling you back. So yes, this text tells us three ways in which Jesus is much superior to angels but it's more than that for us. It's the fact that Jesus is much superior to whatever it is you left when you came to Jesus. So don't dare.
go back to it. Let's look at the text together. If you're there in Hebrews 1, verse 5, say amen. It says this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, speaking of Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, speaking of Jesus, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, last week we saw that there were seven statements about Jesus in the first four verses. That is now followed by seven Old Testament quotations to show us that Jesus is much superior to anything. Now, this is significant because remember, he's writing to those who have been deeply immersed in the Old Covenant and they're being drawn back to it. So he now uses the Old Covenant to show them that everything they had believed was now fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, they weren't necessarily leaving the Old Covenant to come to Jesus. They were experiencing the fullness of the Old Covenant to come to Jesus, the New Covenant established in his blood. So they use these Old Testament references, seven of them, to show us this. There are three ways in which Jesus is much superior. I'm using those words from verse four. Much superior to angels and for us, much superior to anything. So I want to walk through these three ways. And at the end, I want to reflect on some incredible truths that the Lord showed me this week that I think will be practical for you as we leave here. How is it that Jesus is much superior to everything and anything? Well, first is this, write this down. Jesus has a much superior title. Jesus has a much superior title. If you might have noticed, there were a lot of titles given to angels that might have been interesting to you. In verse seven, it says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Like I told my D group last week, I have no idea exactly what that means. I have to be honest with you. Most people would say that the Lord using nature in order to accomplish his purposes like fire and wind will use his angels to do those things. So it could be the angels who stir up winds for the purposes of God. It could be angels that bring fire for the purposes of God. But we know this, they're ministers of the Lord. They accomplish his work. They're at his bidding. Look at verse 14. It says they're ministering spirits. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So they are, in a sense, messengers bringing a word from God. They are ministering spirits and they exist 
to serve believers. We're going to get to that at the very end. But there is a much superior name that Jesus has received. He has inherited, verse 4, a name that is more excellent than all of those names. Meaning Jesus is not just a ministering spirit. Jesus is not simply a messenger of the Lord. As God in the flesh, he's been given a superior name. It's the name given to us in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? If you want to circle something, circle the word son. Everything in the rest of this text revolves around the fact that Jesus has been given the name son. Now listen to me. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the author of Hebrews rebukes the church. And he says this, there's so many other things I would like to tell you. But I can't tell you because you're so used to drinking milk and you can't handle the meat. I don't want to say that about you. And I want you to know right now, we're about to get the meat. We are theologically speaking about to go to a Brazilian steakhouse and get all you can eat meat about the person of Jesus Christ. You ready? Turn up the green side of that card, which says you're ready for more meat. All right, here we go right now. There's a lot of words that confuse us in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the begotten son of God. Jesus is the firstborn son of God. People get all worked up about verse five where it says, today I have begotten you, meaning is Jesus something now that he wasn't before? What does it mean that he has inherited a name that he didn't have in the past? There are all kinds of false religions and doctrines that come out of confusion right here. But all of it is because there's misunderstanding of Jesus as the son of God. It is a more excellent name, but it's more than a name. It's a title. It's really a better way to understand it. It is a description of who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus does. This is a title that has been placed upon the eternally existing Jesus Christ. You call me Pastor Josh. I was Josh before I was pastor. My name is not Pastor Josh. That's a reference to my title. And so you calling me that both reminds me of the responsibility I have to God, the calling upon my life, the fact that I'm going to answer to God for how well I function in this calling. And it is also you referring to me by my position. It's not my name. It's, it's a title given to me. And to a much greater way, when we talk about Jesus as the son of God, it is not just a name. It is a title. It is a description. The Lord wants us to think about Jesus as the son of God, as it is promised to us that a son of God will come in the Old Testament. And that's why he quotes Psalm 2 there in verse 5. He says from Psalm 2, you're my son and today I have begotten you. That's why he quotes 2 Samuel 7.14. Next, I'll be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Both of these references are references to a promise that God made to David in the Old Testament. You see, David, God promised David that someday David would have another son. And that son would also be a king. And he would rule and reign over the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And there would never be an end to his rule. That he would rule in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And Psalm 2 says that one day, all of the nations are going to be given to this king. Which means someday, this king will not just rule over Israel. He will rule over all of the world. And every generation waited on this king. You know, the next generation thought it was Solomon. 
Because no one had ever seen a more glorious king than Solomon, what he built and what he did and the wisdom given to him. So everyone thought, well, maybe Solomon was the promised king, but it didn't take long for them to realize that might not be the case, maybe because all of the concubines, something like that. We thought, well, this couldn't be the guy. And then one thing happened that made us know Solomon wasn't the one. He died. And so did his son and their son and their son and their son and their son. So every single king that came from the lineage of David died. But there was a promise that one day a son was going to come and he was also going to be from the lineage of David and he would not die. And he would not just rule over one nation, but all of the nations would be given to him as his inheritance. Now, when we talk about Jesus as the son of God, it is a declaration that Jesus is in fact the one that was promised. He is the promised son of David who will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords and will rule over every nation someday. This is why when Nathaniel sees Jesus, Nathaniel, who's about to be a disciple, he looks at him and says, behold, that's the son of God, the king of Israel. Listen, that doesn't mean much to us, but that was a massive statement. Here's a Jew looking at Jesus saying, he's the one. That's the one that was promised generations ago. That's the son of David. That's the one that will rule and reign forever. This is why when Gabriel came and gave a message to Mary, what he said is that you're gonna have a son and he's gonna be called great and he's gonna be called the son of the most high and we will sit on his throne, David, making Mary understand from that moment the one she was going to give birth to was going to be the one that had promised as the son of David. Now, this is why it says in verse four that he inherited a name that was greater than them, meaning he was given a name that was greater. What that means is this, listen carefully. In Romans chapter one, verses three and four, it tells us this. It says that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus was given the name, the son of God. Meaning Jesus came as the word, God eternally existing in the flesh. He came and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory after his sinless life, his death, his burial and resurrection so that we might be saved and experience the fullness of this new covenant. Jesus ascended. And remember we talked about last week, set down at the right hand of the father. Now listen, when he sat down at the right hand of the father, he no longer had a crown of thorns. He had the crown of David. It was at that moment in which he was declared the son of God, promised from the Old Testament. And at that moment, he entered into this role as the one who has come to rule and reign for all of eternity. And although we do not see that in the fullness right now, when Jesus Christ returns, we will see Jesus get up off of his throne, return to earth where he will establish that kingdom that has been promised for thousands of years and there will never be an end to his rule and reign. Over every king, over every nation, over every Lord, Jesus will be king. So when it says that Jesus is the begotten son of God, it doesn't mean that he was born in a, in, a, in a way in which he is less than the father, what it means is this. He is, as John 3, 16 says, the only begotten. Listen, fathers beget children. And so it is letting us know that this, this child has an earthly mother, which was necessary for him to come from the lineage of David, but as a heavenly father, this is the only son of God, the one and only that has come from God, the father. 
It also means that in his coming and in his coronation as king, he has entered into this new role where he is in fact declared the promised son of God and the king. All these words exist just to help us to understand what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. And then look at what it says in verse six. It says that he's the firstborn. Listen, that's not a reference to to time. If anyone tries to tell you, well, well, that means that Jesus was born in eternity past, they're not understanding the title of the Son of God. It's not about time. It's about a title, meaning he is the firstborn and that he gets the honor and he gets the rights and the privileges and the inheritance. If you need more information, go back and listen to last week's sermon As the only only begotten, firstborn son of God, he is the one and only son come from the father, fully God, fully man, who gets all the inheritance and will rule and reign over all nations. That's what it means by him begotten, firstborn. So I think given the fact that angels are messengers and ministering spirits, but Jesus is the promised anointed king, it seems safe to say that he's much superior to the angels and to everything else in your life. He is the promised son of David, the king who will rule over all things. So he has a much superior title. The next one is this, he has a much superior honor. Write that down, Jesus has a much superior honor. Now the angels have an incredible honor in verses six and seven. They get the honor of worshiping Jesus. This is the ultimate honor. We were created for this honor, we exist that we might be consumed, all of us given to Jesus all the time. So worship is responding with all of you are, your mind, your emotions, your will, to the revelation of God. So what it means to live a life of worship is that Jesus controls my mind, he controls my emotions, and he controls my will. He's the one to which is uh, forming the decisions that I make. So the angels have this opportunity to give themselves fully to Jesus Christ, to experience that kind of life in which we see in Psalm 8410 that says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked because there is nothing better than worshiping Jesus Christ. So so they have a really great honor, but Jesus has a more superior honor. Well, what is that? Well, Jesus is the one getting the worship. So the one receiving the worship certainly has a more superior honor than the one giving the worship. He is the one that is receiving all of the worship. You see in Luke chapter two, the heavens are filled with these angelic spirit beings and they're all giving worship to Jesus Christ. There is this joy that is coming to the world because Jesus is coming and all of the heavens filled because these angels have seen the glory of Jesus. And go to the end in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 where we see all of these angelic beings surrounding the throne where Jesus is seated and for all of eternity they're gonna simply be declaring worthy are you to receive the glory and the honor and the power. Everything belongs to you. He is the one receiving all of the worship. So the author is saying, I know you marvel at angels. They're incredible, but angels marvel at Jesus. I know you're mesmerized by angels. It's an incredible thought, but the angels are mesmerized with Jesus. So why is it that you would give yourself to worship something that actually exists to worship something greater? Like, why would you worship angels if angels have been created to worship Jesus? Why wouldn't you skip the angels and just worship Jesus? Now, listen to me. Again, I don't think your struggle this week was worshiping angels as opposed to Jesus. But I think all of our struggle this week was worshiping something other than Jesus. 
a person, a hobby, a desire, a dream, whatever else it might be, some kind of desire that we have. And so the same statement is true here. Why is it that you would spend any time worshiping something that was created to worship something greater? Why would you not just worship the thing that's greater? You see, it's, it's simple to know what you worship. We don't know it by the fact you're here this morning. We don't know it by the fact that you're listening to a sermon and taking notes or singing a song and even raising your hands. We know it by what had your mind, will, and emotions last week. What consumed your mind? What is it that was causing you to make certain decisions? What was motivating you? What was going on in your emotions? What made you happy and what made you sad? What was it that was determining that roller coaster you were on last week? That's what you worship. So the author is simply saying, listen, don't give your life to worship something that is inferior to the thing that existed to worship. Simply keep your eyes on Jesus and give him everything you have all the time. What a shame to worship something that exists, to worship something greater. He has a much superior title. He has a much superior honor. The third and final one is this. He has a much superior position. Write that down. He has a much superior title. He has a much superior honor in that he receives the worship and he has a much superior position, verses eight through 14. So in, in verse eight, it begins to use these words like throne and scepter and kingdom and anointed, which is obviously showing that it's the Old Testament referring to the coming of King Jesus, a passage from Psalm 45. So Jesus is obviously, at this point, the promised son of God. He is the one who will one day rule and reign over all things forever. But what kind of king is he? I, I would imagine most of you would have declared, Jesus is the king this morning. I think we even sang about it this morning. But how should we think about Jesus as king? It's one thing to be a king. It's another thing to be the right kind of king. What kind of king is he? Well, let me tell you from this passage this passage tells us that he's an eternal king. You might want to write that down and think about that. He is an eternal king. Psalm 45 says, your throne, verse 8, O God is forever and ever. That the moment in which Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, he began his eternal reign and rule over all things as the anointed promised king. There will never be a time Never be a time in which Jesus is not ruling and reigning over all things. There will never be a time in which he is less than the one who rules and reigns above all. Let me tell you something. I don't know of any passage in this cultural moment we're in that may be more important for us to meditate upon more than Psalm 2, which is quoted right here in verse 5. Because Psalm 2 says this. He says, the nations are raging the kingdoms are tottering. Everything around us feels like it's falling apart. And all the kings are trying to break away the authority of Jesus and say, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to submit to your moral guide. We're going to break ourselves free from this oppressive rule of Jesus Christ. And as all of the nations are raging and all of the kings are shaking their puny fist in the face of God, it says the Lord laughs. Why? Because seated at the right hand is the one he has already appointed to be the king of all things. 
And so the Lord is not worried. He's not stressed when he sees all the chaos that is going on around us. There is a settledness because he knows a king has already been established. What matters is this, are you on his side? Because his kingdom will rule and reign forever and everything else will perish. Now, if there's anything to be worried about, that's it. Are you on the side of King Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior? If so, can I just plead with you to rest in the reality that Jesus is not pacing. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will one day return and make all things right. He's the eternal king. He's also a holy king. (laughs) He's a holy king. This encouraged me this week. It says the scepter uh, that you hold is one of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, verses eight and nine. In other words, this king in this kingdom is one who pursues and loves that which is right. He hates wickedness. He is ruled by justice. There's a ministry that I, I love and have followed for a while, the International Justice Mission. It's a Christian organization that seeks in a Christ-centered way uh, to deliver people who are involved in human trafficking. Do you realize that it is a $150 billion a year industry? People being, most of the time, kidnapped and sold into slavery. If you just imagine what kind of slavery, mostly women and children. Their children kidnapped and taken and sold to people in other countries. $150 billion a year. If that doesn't make you furious, there's something wrong. There are still 40 million people who are living in slavery around the world. There's massive, particularly outside of this country, massive oppression of women and children. And the International Justice Mission seeks to express the justice of God by delivering people from this. And there is just something about that that stirs me up. Like, I, I want to I be a part of that. Like, I want to see the justice of God come down on the ones who are kidnapping children and selling them into slavery. Now, let me tell you something particularly college students in the tabernacle in this room, listen to this. The world is going to tell you that Jesus is bigoted and hateful and hates certain groups of people. But the reality is it is only those who stand on the side of Jesus that will ever know true love and justice. If you want to side with justice, side with King Jesus. If you want to see justice come, then side with King Jesus. Jesus alone and those who stand with him know real love and real peace and real justice. And one day he will bring all of that justice. He is a just and a holy and a righteous God. He hates what is wicked and stands for what is right. He's an eternal king and a holy king. We're also told in verse 9, listen. He's a happy king. (laughs) He's a happy king. I love this. It says that, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if you want to dive a little bit deeper into this, go back to my sermon from last fall on Psalm 45, because this comes with this text. And I, um, for the first time, realized what Psalm 45 is saying and is repeated in Hebrews 1, and that is this. That when you get to heaven, the thing that might surprise you the most is just how happy Jesus is. He has been given an oil of gladness, an anointing of gladness beyond his companions, meaning there is no one else 
that has more gladness than Jesus Christ. Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy and his right hand are pleasures forever. Meaning the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know of his joy and true pleasure. There is no one who is happier than Jesus Christ. And if you read the gospels and you think about the way in which sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes were drawn to Jesus and you just think about that for a minute. They were pushed away from the, from the church in that time, but they were drawn to Jesus. What is it that Jesus had that the church didn't have? What I would say is this, compassionate eyes, a gentle spirit, and a happy disposition. That's what I think Jesus had that maybe the modern church today also doesn't have. If we exuded that kind of gentleness and kindness and love and joy, maybe there wouldn't be an empty seat in this place. If you exuded it and I exuded it when we left here, I have to believe that people that were never drawn to the church would be drawn to Jesus. I don't want them to be drawn to the church. I want to be drawn to Jesus. And the church exists to be that manifestation. Well, there's never been anyone that's got more joy than Jesus does. He's an eternal king, a holy king, a happy king. And finally, listen, he is a sovereign king. Verse 10 quotes Psalm 102, and it says, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. All of these things told to us in verses one through four. The heavens are the work of your hands and they perish, but you remain. They wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. This is like the symbolism of one day the Lord will take everything on this earth and he will roll it up and dispose of it and then create a new heavens and a new earth here, the way it was supposed to be. And it says like a robe, you've rolled them up like a garment. They're going to be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. He is a sovereign king who rules over everything. I love how the scripture works and you got to slow down a little bit to see it, but in the midst of some heavy firstborn begotten son of God stuff, we get a little word picture. The word picture is this, is that everything in creation is going to wear out and perish like an old garment, but only Jesus remains the same. We need to stop in the midst of all this heaviness and just get this little picture in our mind. So I have four daughters and then my fifth child is a son. And because my uh, firstborn was the first grandkid on my mother's side of the family and the first girl on, uh, on Andrea's side of the family, uh, these girls got tons of girl clothes. My mother had waited a long time for grandkids. I was in seminary and my two older brothers were not yet married. My mother put a picture of a baby on the fridge at Christmas, gathered all her sons around and says, I want these. She had been waiting for this. So it's just all these girls' clothes that came. And so Lily wore them when she was, you know, one. And then after she was one and became two, Andrea took all these clothes and washed them and folded them up and put them in a bin that said one. And then after two, she washed them and put them in a bin and it said two and three. And so my basement is filled with a countless number of bins of all of these girl clothes. Then uh, we had three nieces. And so all of my girls wore these clothes. Like Lily's like the only one that's ever had anything new to wear. And so they all get these clothes. And then we have these nieces that get these clothes. So listen, I go on family vacation and see a girl wearing clothes that are 16 years old and seven girls have one, worn. And after that, they're gonna give them to somebody else. They're gonna wash them and fold them and put them in a bin, okay? So I just thought this is the way that it happened. Then we had Josiah. 
And I realized there is no washing, folding, and putting in a bin and giving it to another child. There is about six months of wear with Josiah into which those articles of clothing are so disgusting you, you would feel guilty for giving them to Goodwill or anybody else for that matter. They just have to go directly in the trash. I brought an example this morning. Five months ago, we bought these shoes. They have holes in both toes. I didn't leave them up here all day because they smell really bad. I went and grabbed them this morning. I went to put them in my bag and wood chips started. There's just all still stuff coming out. There are five months. If these were my girls' shoes, seven girls would have worn them. I'm actually not going to throw these away. I'm going to keep these because I love these cute little shoes. They're just incredible. Let me just tell you something. Everything you own, everything in your life is Josiah's shoes. Everything. It's all going to wear out. It's all going to be rolled up. It's all going to be disposed of. The only thing that lasts is Jesus and those who are his. Nothing else really lasts at all. So what a shame it would be for you to give yourself to something so inferior when there's something so much greater. I love this passage of scripture and the way in which it declares the glory of the son. But the truth is, I really believe there is something more practical here for us in a sense It is not our intention to just fill our minds just with these facts, but to see how these facts influence our lives. And so as we close this morning, let me tell you practically the truths that come from this text. I I want you to meditate on these and think about these. Remember, this is the beginning of a conversation. so, So just write this down. Here's what God is saying to us practically from this text. First thing is this. There will always be something pulling you away from Jesus. That's what this text tells us. There's always going to be something pulling you away from Jesus. To them, it was angels constantly pulling them back. That's probably not it for you, but listen, it is something. There is something, most likely something from the life you left that is pulling you away from Jesus. There will never be a moment in this life in which there is not something constantly pulling you back to Jesus. And you are never stagnant in this life. You're either moving toward Jesus or away from Jesus. I'm not gonna mess up next week's sermon, but listen, at the end of all these truths, chapter two, verse one says this, having heard all of this, be careful, lest you drift away. In other words, the author is aware right here, and we'll talk about this more in depth next week, that you are constantly being drawn away. It could be friends or sin or a relationship or a hobby or work or business or some anxiety or dreams or just the cares of this world. There is a constant pull for you to go away from Jesus. You must see it and you must fight it with all of your might. That truth is here in this text. Always something pulling you away. The other practical truth is this, is that you must then fix your eyes on Jesus and hold fast to Jesus. This text tells us that. Apart from all the angels, 
You gotta hold fast to Jesus, knowing that something is drawing you away. Hold tight, remain faithful, stay the course. The entire book is giving the same message. Hold on to Jesus. Don't get drawn back into the things that are simply leaving you disappointed. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Run this marathon race that is set before you. Don't for a minute take your eyes off of Jesus. Listen, because at any moment in the day, if you take your eyes off Jesus, what are you gonna do? You're gonna drift. You never drift toward Jesus, you drift away. So fix your eyes on Jesus. And the final practical truth is this, think about this together. So you're constantly being pulled away. So you fix your eyes on Jesus. And the last one is this, listen, God has given angels to help you in this marathon called the Christian life. Look at verse 14. Are they angels, not all ministering spirits? ministering spirits, they minister. Well, certainly they just minister to the Lord. Well, they do that, but listen, they're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're sent out to serve us, believers, to help us, to serve us, to minister to us, for fight for us in this Ephesians 6 cosmic battle that is going on around us. Matthew 4.11 says that when Jesus was done with his temptation, the angels came and ministered to him. Psalm 34, seven says, the angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear him. There's this little verse in Matthew 18, 10. It's talking about not making a, a weaker brother or sister stumble. And it says that these little children have angels that are watching over them. It's, it's from that text, which people get the idea of a guardian angel. Do we have a, a guardian angel? Does every one of us have an angel? Well, listen to this brief quote from John Calvin as he talks about this. The interpretation given to this passage by some commentators, as if God assigned to each believer his own angel, does not rest on solid grounds. For the words of Christ do not mean that a single angel is continually occupied with this or the other person. Listen. And such an idea is inconsistent with the whole doctrine of Scripture which declares that the angels encamp around the godly and that not one angel alone, but many have been commissioned to guard every one of the faithful. Away then with this fanciful notion of a good and evil angel and let us rest satisfied with the holding that the care of the whole church is committed to angels to assist each member as his necessity shall require. What are you saying is this? You don't have a guardian angel, you have a host of angels. That the way in which God is helping us be safely, make it safely until the end faithful is because God has given myriads of angels to assist you. They are protecting you from countless things that you will never see. They are doing things in your life in such a way that are drawing you away from that which is pulling you away from Christ and bringing you closer to Christ. God so passionately longing for you to make it until the end faithful to Jesus has sent ministering spirits, myriads of them, to assist you. That's incredible. I got fired up about that this week, more than you are right now. That was, I'd never thought about that. Is that, a, is that a neat? It's incredible that God has done this for us. And all of these angels exist to do one thing, just to keep you close to Jesus. Just to keep you from being pulled away by the things you left. Don't go back. You know, one of the things I kept thinking as, as I was um, studying this is, wouldn't it be cool to get an angelic vision 
Let's just be honest for a minute. Yeah, it'd be neat. You're laying in bed and it's dark and all of a sudden you think somebody turns the lights on. You get irritable. Who turned the lights on? And you open your eyes and there's an angelic being clothed in white, radiating light. It's just incredible being. And you look up and this person calls you by name and says, hey, can we talk for a minute? Can you imagine that? And the angel then begins to tell you things from God. Hey, listen, I was just in the presence of the Lord and he wanted me to tell you some things about who you are and maybe some misunderstandings you have. And he just has a special word for you. Can you imagine if that happened? I'll tell you this, you'd be on TBN if that happened. If you were a kid, you'd probably get a movie, right? You'd at least get a book deal out of this. I mean, what, how incredible, I mean, you can't, you can't even think about anything more incredible than that, an angelic vision, someone sent from God to, to speak to you. Now listen to this, as incredible as that might seem, and as overwhelming as it might be to have a messenger sent from God to speak specifically to you, it does not compare to the glory of what you already have in Jesus Christ. You don't need the messenger from an angelic being because Jesus is superior to every one of those angelic beings. So if you wanna get a word from God, directly from God, if you wanna hear a little bit about who you are and get some clarity about life and about God, why don't you open the gospels and read about the heart of Jesus Christ? Why don't you immerse yourself in the book of Romans and see the glories of the gospel? Why don't you go to Revelation and get a fresh picture of the glorious King Jesus who's gonna one day return? What you already have is better than any angelic vision. So church, just keep going after Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.